I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, Poisonese. Welcome to another episode of Expert Witness, our bonus series where we talk to special guests about some of the content we share on the show. Poison, true crime, cocktails, madness and more. From historians and psychotherapists to authors and doctors, we love to get different perspectives on crime, poison and entertainment itself from people from all walks of life with different areas of expertise. This instalment is a release of an episode we did way back in August 2020 with esteemed historian and good friend Tim Cloak. Tim Cloak is a history teacher and a very good friend of the show. In fact, Tim has done multiple Deadly Nightcaps episodes with us on Patreon and they have always been incredibly well received. But way back when we started doing our Expert Witness series, we decided to ask Tim to do a special guest episode talking about one of his favourite subjects, the death of Charles II. Nick and I had a huge amount of fun recording this with Tim. The sound quality is a little bit different because we recorded this a couple of years ago. It was during the pandemic, but Nick and I were able to be in the same room. Tim was recording remotely from Devon. Enjoy. Welcome to another bonus episode of The Poisonous Cabinet with me, Sinead. Uh, and me, Nick. Yes. Yes, well it's me. You remembered. Well got my name right. <laughs> Bringing you more tales of poisoning cases from across the centuries, all washed down with cocktails that will make your eyes bleed. How Hopefully are you, not. <laughs> well, I haven't had a bleeding eyes just yet. Not yet? Oh, That's... but the night is young. Well, exactly. It is early days. But you're well. I'm very well. Yes, we've had a lovely Saturday. It's been a we? very civilised Saturday. I went out for a meal for the first time since March. Nothing like a meal. <laughs> Someone else brought me food and drink. It they brought a food table. <laughs> it was lovely. Oh, proper Italian. Late, late lunch. Yeah. Late lunch. Better pasta. Quite wine. surprised I'm actually still awake at this point. It was, well, because we did all have double espressos at the end of it. This and now true. we're just so ready! Well, this is an extra special bonus episode that we are bringing you this week because you're joined by one of our much-coveted expert witnesses. Yes, every now and then we like to invite guests with a particular area of expertise onto the show to help make sense of the pure mania Nick and I create. <laughs> like to have people with actual credentials Well, actually, you know what they're talking about. And this week we are joined by the eminent historian, our dear friend Tim Cloak. Hello. I've never been described as eminent in any field, let alone history, but it's lovely to be here. So, Tim, we have known each other for a very long time. You are also one mm. of our patrons, and we, we are so grateful for that. You're Thank you so man. much. Uh, it is my pleasure. You're paying for the content you're creating right now. <laughs> well, exactly. Now that, that's, but that's very much like my job as a teacher, where I, my, my taxes are paying my own salary, so it's, it feels kind of right. <laughs> So, Tim, you are a teacher and a historian and various other mm -hmm. things. Uh, tell the lovely listeners about you. Tell them about the mystery that is Tim. I'm a, a history teacher at a school in Devon, which shall remain nameless for reasons of professionalism. I did uh, history at Bangor University. I've done various bits of acting, including in a Victorian jail and all sorts of daft places. And, and it's through that acting that I actually got to know you, Sinead, and then Nick as well. But uh, I've been a history teacher for 11 years now. And uh, happily, one of the areas that I've had to become quite, quite proficient in is the history of medicine. And uh, an alarming amount of the history of medicine is really just the history of controlled poisonings, uh, <laughs> as people didn't really understand uh, the, the ways of different elements and different chemicals and the effects that they had on the body. And so I'm hoping I can bring some of this expertise uh, and enlighten the listeners about a particular case that is of interest to me and is indeed on the GCSE specifications. So for some people, this might even be revision. I, I, if, if there's anyone who is using this for revision listening to our podcast, I worry. <laughs> I worry for them if they have been, if they've gotten to 
23 episodes and are not slightly warped. Well, I didn't say they'd do well. <laughs> that is that is true, yeah. That is true. There was a certain disclaimer there. It's rare that we have someone with with so many credentials actually on and the show. knowledge. <laughs> he imparts wisdom on the young. Indeed. Or we just make it up. Oh Yeah, we do. I think our podcast should be on the curriculum, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the process of rewriting my curriculum at the moment, so for the right money... (laughs) So for a change, as this is a a special episode, we're going to let Tim take us on a journey. looking forward to this. I have to to do no work for this one, (laughs) apart from drink. I'm so excited. (laughs) Tim, as an actor, as he's uh, said, uh, you are in very good hands, chap, so it's not going to be one of those boring history lectures. Is it, Tim? Is it? After all, I did say this is on the the GCSE history specification, so it's all bets are off. Should we all just take a break smoking out the back of the bike shed? That's that's what kids do, isn't it? Well, that's all I have on kids, quite frankly. I don't don't understand how children work. (laughs) Well, before we get into the luscious story that you're going to tell us, Tim, very importantly for the Poisonous Cabinet, what are you drinking? I've gone quite simple this time. I've got a, a classic mojito. Nice. I've decided to go for this, though, because several of the ingredients of the mojito are mentioned in my tale. Having listened to the podcast, I know that sometimes you, you struggle for the secret ingredients. There are so, so many in this that if you ever get stuck, just revisit this story <laughs> and you'll have an entire cabinet stocked. It's ridiculous. Uh, we've got the mint, which is included. Um, the rum, sadly, isn't, but you can't have a mojito without rum, quite literally. Uh, but also, there's a mention of bitters within this story, and that is something I like to add to my mojito for a little extra something. That's what I've got, yeah. I've, I've never tried bitters in a mojito before. No, I've never tried it, so, and I, mm. I, have, I take issue, quite frankly, Tim. I'm not, I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy. The whole podcast is ruined. Well, it's been lovely. And so, uh, <laughs> all of these notes I wrote. And as, as if I have known you for how many years have we known each other, Tim? Never have mm. I seen you, I think, with a cocktail. And you've just brought this out of the bag for the podcast, which is adorable, quite <laughs> frankly. Did you grind I mean, the mint all, yourself? I did. It's uh, I, Not only did I grind the mint myself, I grew it in the garden myself. It is the very freshest of ingredients. Devon's changed you, man. Devon's changed you. <laughs> I mean, you can't argue with mojito. We've not had not. a mojito on the main episode yet. Yeah. Some there's one for the list. Nick, you have we have made a, a joint cocktail this week. Nick, talk we us through it. Well, I've made Corpse Revivers. Yay! Which we have had mm. on the main episode um, before. And why did we do it today? Because they're lovely. And also and, we had a big lunch. And also we had a big lunch <laughs> and I'm feeling a bit sleepy. So I was like, need something to kickstart the, kickstart the evening. So, absinthe. That's, that's... <laughs> it is. It's all have a sip. Have a little sip on air. Yeah. Oh, that's very, very, very good. <clears throat> <gasps> I oh, feel you forget. one sip and I feel very much revived. <laughs> really, do that really works. And this it's is a, genuinely on occasion drink. when we, we've needed a corpse reviver. There's a lot you, of pasta. You were just, you say, we just have the one. More than that, then you would be unrevived. After three, I thought it was. Yeah, I, think it's I thought after we three, have three. three. We've got three to go. That. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. <laughs> we have corpse revivers. We have mojitos. We have a fresh bouquet of cocktails. <laughs> and we are ready for a story. So, for the first time ever, expert witness Tim, take us on a journey. Well, thank you very much. We discussed uh, looking at some historical poisoning cases and um, various ideas came up. But quite soon, I happened upon one thing that I have taught time and time and time again and that my students always find utterly hilarious. Uh, And what funnier story doesn't finish with the death of a king? (laughs) So today, I would like uh, to take you on the story of Charles II of England. Charles the Second. Ooh, he was a king. (laughs) He absolutely was a king. Uh, And not just any old king. He was often described as the Merry Monarch. He was utterly beloved in his time. And he met a very unfortunate end. Actually, there's no real crimes committed in this story. Although perhaps the people responsible for the poisonings within this story should have been uh, dealt with by the law. But actually, they were just going by what they knew. I mean, this is all very deliberately done, but they weren't quite understanding of the effects of these things. You're probably familiar with Charles II in, in terms of uh, your basic knowledge of the past. Can we talk us through it, Tim? Let's assume that we know that there was a king once and now there's a queen. But Charles II, he was, he was born on the 29th of May in 1630. You can and, compress uh, it, it's fine. As, as a happy coincidence, I suppose, his father died of heavy metal poisoning. You might be familiar with the story of Charles the First, who died with a heavy piece of metal. It is a heavy piece of metal. That's sort of what I'm getting at. 
Um, I like that. Anyway, as a result, uh, normally on the death of the previous king, it's it's very much a case of, you know, the king is dead and long live the king, but not so the case with his son Charles II, who immediately had to flee from Cromwell's England. I'm sure we all have our thoughts on Cromwell. I certainly know what mine are. Um, there was very little fun, uh, is often referred to, although Cromwell was quite partial to smoking and dancing for some reason. Yeah. To, be f- to be fair, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, as long as it wasn't on Christmas Day, of course, none of that. So after the ten or so years of uh, Cromwell's protectorate and his son Richard taking over for about a year before he resigned, uh, there was a bit of a pickle in that really there wasn't consensus over how the country should move forward in terms of its government until someone piped up and said, we could just get a king back, you know. (laughs) They considered it, they looked at their options, and uh, they thought, well, the the king's eldest son, Charles, is still alive. He had famously tried to retake the throne in 1651 during the Second English Civil War, had been soundly defeated at the Battle of Worcester, and uh, there won't be too many questions in this, but I wonder if either of you know how he managed to escape from Cromwell's new model army. Uh, So so Charles versus son... Mm -hmm. How he escaped from the army? Well, let's let's be blunt. I don't know, but I'm gonna go with he disguised himself as a washerwoman and bribed his way out with cake. You know what? You're not a million miles from the truth there. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> well, you're closer than you think. Uh, if you uh, have ever been to a pub, which I believe you might have, once or twice, <laughs> once or twice, yes. Have you ever been to a pub called the Royal Oak? Anywhere. Yes, I would have been to one or two. Because it's a very popular it's name. Novel, yeah. The name comes from uh, the story of Charles, after the Battle of Worcester, escaping from Parliament's forces by hiding up an oak tree. I did know that. What? what? No, what? Yeah, he hid up a tree, so they couldn't find him. Oh, he just hid up a tree. Yes. A stationary tree. <clears throat> yes, the right. tree yes. wasn't moving. The first thing that came into my head is that he climbed into a tree and sidestepped out of view. <laughs> I swear to God, that's what I thought. This is where the Ents came in at the end of the Civil War. <laughs> oh, okay, I, why did I just go to that he disguised himself as a tree? <laughs> that's a terrible disguise. Trees don't walk. So he hid up a tree. Is that is that he just hid out the? I mean, basically, he realised, Christ, these people are after me, and uh, so he climbed up this great big oak tree, which is uh, today in an emboscable house, or rather, the descendants of that tree are still in emboscable house from acorns and. However else you reproduce trees, I've, I've never really tried it, despite my, my loneliness. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, so Charles was hidden up this tree and Cromwell's men could not find him. And, and it took about six weeks and a variety of disguises, including his women. And that's why you weren't a million miles from the truth. Until eventually he managed to get to France and exile. But he was invited back to become king, but with certain conditions. Uh, And so on his 30th birthday, the 29th of May of 1660, he's invited to become king of England, Ireland. And he was already kind of proclaimed king of Scotland, but that gets all rather complicated. Uh, But Charles II, he's now king of England and the nation rejoices as it steps out of the austere boringness of uh, of puritanical England. There's much rejoicing. Much rejoicing and a fair amount of shagging, to be honest with you. Uh, You might be familiar with Charles II's, frankly, prodigious list of illegitimate children and uh, and mistresses that he had. I'm now going to list Charles's legitimate children. Are you ready? Uh, Okay. I hope you enjoyed that, because there were none. (laughs) But he had 12 illegitimate children. Uh, The boys were given the the, the kind of nickname, if you like, Fitzroy, son of the king, or Fitzcharles. Uh, but he had five children with Barbara Villiers. The rest of his children were sort of shared between his other mistresses. There was Mole Davis, uh, Nell Gwynne, Elizabeth Kil- Killigrew, Catherine Pegg, uh, Lucy Walter. Uh, one of my favourites is Louise de Kerouai, uh, who was a spy on behalf of Louis XIV of France. Uh, she did well. I mean, she managed to bed the King of England. Surely the name gave it away. Nell Gwynne there and Liz Smith and Betty England and then you have the lady Frenchy lady whether he just didn't care I mean she've seen look at the paintings she's pretty hot to be fair she's French she knows the ways well Charles certainly thought so anyway Um, Winifred Wells and uh, the ridiculously named Hortense Mancini Um, so Oh, that's good. Charles was known to some of his his friends and closer courtiers as as Old Roly, which was the name of a famous stallion racehorse at the time, and they compared him to this this uh, famous stallion of the stud farm. And I think Charles was quite happy with this uh, this reputation. I have, to, I have to say, if someone was nicknamed me Old Roly, I would perhaps not be so clean about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> he does well, bring to mind sort of a slightly sort of rotund fellow. Um, <laughs> oh, rolly, rolly, rolly. <laughs> well, I mean, if you knew it was a whore, if you, if they called well, you yeah, secretariat or something or sea biscuit. No, if they called you sea biscuit, it'd still be weird. That's a weird name for a horse, anyway. But old Rowley, yeah, it does sort of give a kind of a false stuff kind of idea, doesn't <laughs> yes. it? But, but I think Charles was quite happy with this sort of reputation, and uh, he, he reveled in the fact that he was seen as quite a populist uh, sort of character. Really, he was uh, a very popular king at the time, and uh, looking back on his life, uh, John Wilmot, the uh, second Earl of Rochester, had this to say of him. And I think it's a, a really, it's a quite a touching tribute, really, so I, I hope you're ready. And he said... Restless he rolls from whore to whore, a merry monarch scandalous and poor. <laughs> so he's, he's quite the character, and I've got, I've got a lot of time for Charles II. He's one of the more interesting kings. Does seem to have been basically like this. He tried to live life to the max, having spent so much of his early adulthood in exile. And the country kind of kind of liked him for it. But you might be wondering where this gets onto the whole role of poisoning. You might be thinking, well, perhaps his prodigious list of mistresses would have perhaps uh, wanted to poison him in retribution. But no, they seem to have been largely aware of each other and quite fine with it. But really, it comes down to his ailing health and the last few days of his life in which he was relying on the best medical brains in England to save him from an affliction. Can we just point out this moment? Doctors, the greatest poison (laughs) of them all! Well, I can only agree. And as I go through this absolute travesty of medical science... I think you're going to find that that is only confirmed. This will do nothing for my thoughts on all doctors before (laughs) 1970. (laughs) Just go on, lay it on me, lay it on me. Prove me wrong, Tim. (laughs) The end of our story begins, if that makes sense, on the 2nd of February of 1685. Day started much like any other with Charles rising and he went to shave like he normally would do. He apparently shrieked out in pain and collapsed onto the floor, at which point uh, he convulsed in a series of fits or seizures. Now, this caused a certain amount of alarm amongst the uh, the royal court, and they rushed him to his bedchamber, put him in bed, and summoned six royal physicians who attended the king immediately. I thought you were going to say they immediately called six royal prostitutes, knowing Charles' reputation. I'll be honest with you, it would have done him far more good had they done so. (laughs) Much like too many cooks spoiling the broth, we've got these six royal physicians attending the king and and they're not really agreeing what sort of treatment the king needs. And so, frankly, on the first day of his treatment, and and happily there was a, a diary kept of the treatments in detail right down to the last ingredient, they really threw the kitchen sink at him on that first day. There are ten separate treatments that they attempted on this first day. Now, some of them are going to have to develop in a little bit more detail because they require you to have some knowledge of the medical beliefs of the time, which actually date back many millennia, in fact, in some, uh, some instances. So the very first thing they did with the king, who had recovered from his seizures and had regained his consciousness, is they took one look at him, they decided to bleed 16 ounces of blood out of him. Fairly standard. Yeah. It's it's still pretty. It's it's quite old fashioned even for that time. But bloodletting mm. incredibly important. Get the yes. Treat the four humours. Get the ghosts That's out right. of ye blood. Many of his uh, treatments did date back to this idea of the four humours. It, it's based upon the four elements. So if they were imbalanced in some minor way, then it would change your personality. If they were imbalanced in a more major way, then it would change your health. So our four humours are yellow bile black bile, phlegm, and blood. So if you have an excess of yellow bile, you become aggressive or choleric. Then the next one we've got is black bile, uh, which is associated with earth. And if you've got too much black bile, then you become melancholy or depressed. Um, Then we have phlegm, I think most people will be familiar with. And and again, this is where the theory of the four humours really seems to make sense, because if you have got phlegm streaming out of your nose, then you are unwell, and it's almost as if the body is trying to get rid of it. And then, of course, blood is uh, the sanguine uh, humour, which makes you active and enthusiastic and is uh, associated with childhood and infancy. Um, But if you were being excitable or perhaps suffering seizures, then get rid of some of the blood. Well, it would certainly stop you feeling quite so energetic. Well, kill or cure is what they're sort of going for here, as we'll find out. It was the idea idea that uh, well he's he's suffered these seizures he must have too much blood in him so if we let some of it out he will go sort of pale and limp and therefore we must have done some good anyway that's only the first of 10 treatments on the first day so they've bled 16 ounces of blood from him 
So the next thing that they do is they decided to um, embark on a treatment of hot cup treatment, which involves taking little metal cups and heating them up until they're really hot and placing them on the skin to draw out blisters. The pain of this was supposed to stimulate the king's body, but also the blisters themselves were supposed to draw out the ill humours that were making him ill. So they would lance these blisters and the fluid that flowed out would supposedly carry the illness away with them. And it didn't work. So they bled eight ounces oh. more blood out of him. Yeah. So you can imagine the, uh, the king is starting to look a little bit like a, a damp, kind of limp fish at this point. But they're not anywhere near done. Oh, God. All right. Now we're going to get into the realms of laxatives, purgatives and enemas. And I hope you're all right with that. Yeah. So, um, fun times. <laughs> so the herbal purgatives and laxatives, those are quite common treatments. And again, they may have done some good in, in certain circumstances. But I'm a little bit more worried about the enema that they applied to the king. Because this is not the only time they gave it to him over the course of his treatment. The diary of the physicians included as the ingredients of this enema the following. And I wonder what sort of cocktail Nick could make out of these. <laughs> Ground antimony, nice. sacred bitters, rock salt, mallow leaves, violet, beetroot, chamomile flowers, fennel seed, linseed, cinnamon, cardamom seed, saffron, and aloes. That's just a curry. <laughs> yeah, more or less. It's going to smell it's lovely. Pretty delicious. It, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful tincture. <laughs> what? So it, it seemed to be understood that Effectively, the bowels, I don't know how to put this, but they don't smell brilliant, do they? And all of these, all of these ingredients mixed together do smell rather wonderful. And uh, another one of the uh, predominant medical theories at the time was the, the theory of miasma or miasma. The idea that bad air and bad smells can itself cause yeah. disease. Again, it, they're not a million miles from the truth. I mean, it's the idea that these bad smells are created by bacteria, which are harmful. They just didn't know that bacteria cause disease, even though we're around about the time when the first microorganisms are being observed under microscopes. But there's this belief in an idea of spontaneous generation where they just pop out of nowhere rather than actually <laughs> causing disease and multiplying for themselves. That's how science So works. once all this has been stumped, stuffed up the fundament of the king, they think, well, perhaps it will, it will do some good. He's stuffed oh, with goodness. potpourri. Yes, I'm sure he was smelling absolutely wonderful by this point. Oh, God. That's treatment number five of ten. So we're halfway through his endurance act of the day. And let's jump uh, in the, you know, it's not, while that sounds absolutely crazy, still colonic irrigation is a thing. <laughs> people people take right. coffee enemas. People take all sorts of things now to purge the body. You know, don't. Because don't. <laughs> I mean, it's, so don't, don't put violets up your, you know, just don't do it. Just don't do it. No, or, or beetroots for that matter, prepared or otherwise. Who puts beets um, up there? Why? It's and cinnamon. I, I a hint of cinnamon. Oh, I mean, I've heard of a cinnamon challenge from a few years. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> Puff of puring uh, cinnamon coming from the uh, the back end of the king. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure this is doing him a particularly large amount of good. So they decide to force feed him uh, a medicine. Uh, I do mean force feed it. He, they put a a tube down his throat and just squirted it down there. So they prepared a syrup of, of blackthorn, blackthorn and rock salt, and then they maybe made their first wise choice of the day where they simply said to the king, yeah, well, maybe you should just get some sleep now. <laughs> and he did. And he slept. I'm surprised he must be exhausted oh. after all that. <laughs> I mean, he's not well anyway. Well, he's been bloodless. He's weak beyond doubt. And then now he's had various things put in him from all angles. Some of which he may have enjoyed. Uh, uh, he just needs a nap. I've not even been able to confirm whether he finished shaving or not. I mean, that's the <laughs> He might not have even have looked his best. <laughs> so I like to imagine at this point that the king is simply asleep and you've got these six doctors around who are sort of discussing other treatments that they could try. I don't want to slander them, but I almost imagine that they're watching the king in silence getting bored. Because <laughs> eventually, one of them pipes up with this idea. Hey, why don't we shave the king's head and then blister his scalp with those cap those cups we were using earlier. What? Yeah, let's give that a try. That's what they thought they'd try next. Purge now, the brain. Whether they thought that would have worked, I don't know. But what I do know from the diaries is they chose not to wake the king before they embarked upon this. <laughs> oh, come on. So, so they gently shaved his scalp, prepared the hot cups, and then placed them on there. And you know what? He woke up. What a surprise. <laughs> Well, yeah. So they've now made these blisters all over his scalp and they've started to draw off the fluid from there, hoping to draw out even more of these humours. The king, by this point, is presumably screaming and weeping. Is, is this a very, very rudimentary early version of the game operation? 
of just it where they be. were just pissed and then went that you know let's see who does this for the longest and went oh he's woken up oh you lose down your drink as it happens treatment number seven it says the king's nose turned red and he buzzed so yeah perhaps <laughs> the thing is with uh, with this particular treatment though is of course it woke him up and probably the sleep was the first thing that they had done all day that was actually doing him any good and they noticed actually that his his condition deteriorated after this treatment and they still had some of the enema mixed up so they thought they'd give him another one oh, <laughs> well waste not one not you know these things are hard to come by so they gave him an enema number two yeah same ingredients quite right they thought well the last one put him to sleep so maybe this one will do it again and sure enough he he drifted off to sleep so they woke him again with the hot cups and blisters <laughs> I know, it, it's it's basically torture by this point. Oh, such wonderful food you're preparing. Yeah, mm-hmm, yep, <laughs> great. Yeah, we're going to need more beetroot. Luckily, there would have been, a, a, am sure, a very well-stocked physic garden in the palace, so uh, they'd been running around getting all sorts of ingredients together. And the next of these ingredients is they put together an irritant powder, the ingredients of which were not listed, but it was probably made with rosemary and pepper and things like that. And so they shoved it up his nose to make him sneeze repeatedly, which I'm sure did his blisters wonderfully good, uh, a wonderful amount of good as well. And then the next bit's really quite ambiguous, because I'm not sure how this was um, administered. But they got cowslip flowers... And they placed them on his stomach. Now, whether that was externally or actually they made him swallow them, and that's what they meant by being placed on his stomach, I don't know. But uh, I can't imagine it did him a huge amount of harm or good having the cowslip flowers. So I, 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 I like the idea that after all of this incredibly invasive treatment... We're just laying some flowers on his stomach. <laughs> them lay the flowers on the tummy, and now we wait. <laughs> so once they'd done that, the king actually did drift off to sleep again. So uh, It's because no one was fucking with that's... him, quite frankly. Look, if I can't sleep tonight, that's exactly what I'm going to try. I'm going to go into the hedgerows. Be a nice flowery smell. It's going to be quite pleasant to drift off. Uh, I would say a sound thrashing is going to be soothing compared to the rest of what they did to him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you can imagine, this this series of treatments has been going on for some, some time. And so 12 hours later, they decide that it is time to let the king just get some rest tim all of this has gone yes. on within 12 hours 12 hours i thought this was over a course of days this is no no this hours. is all in the, in the same day they've tried this just to see if any of it works oh my god <laughs> oh good god that poor man by, by my reckoning we got six physicians maybe each of them was given two hours to work his magic and then they seem <laughs> to be good and, and the so, one who did the cowslip flowers. <laughs> so I have got my two hours. Damn it. I'm going to, you yeah. have to stand here and watch those flowers. Exactly. Everyone else stole mm. my idea. So I've got um <laughs> with the fucking flowers. Which rather begs the question who came up with the next one? Because as the king was drifting off to sleep, they decided that one thing might, they might try to draw out further of the humours was to just spread a thick layer of pigeon guano over <laughs> his, the soles of his feet. <laughs> So I think Sinead's just collapsed. Yeah, she, she's gone. <laughs> now, what? It, it didn't seem to have woken him. Uh, it's, it's, he was pretty exhausted by that point. Is yes. there any vague logic? What was the reasoning behind this? I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the idea of using strong-smelling substances to combat disease was quite common. And it, indeed, even dating back to the Black Death of the 1300s, uh, there were ideas that you could draw out poisons with various disgusting-smelling things. Uh, for example, the buboes associated with the bubonic plague would often be covered with feces in the hope that that would draw out more of the poisons. What it actually did is it infected them and, and encouraged the growth of things like pus. But they thought that that was a sign of healing rather than it actually necessarily body being over overwhelmed another thing was uh, which was commonly tried was they would shave the back end of a chicken and place that over the sores and hope that that whatever poison would end up therefore in the chicken the chicken would die and you would recover um, go to the chicken just like the the prophet hen of, uh, of your wonderful story <laughs> yes. so th- this idea of uh, just getting bad smelling things and things associated with birds to draw out poisons and to combat disease was something that was had been quite regularly tried time and time again early physicians uh, not 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 way back would use foul smells near the vagina to chase the womb back to where it needed to be <laughs> because apparently the womb wandered around the body and that's what drove women to hysteria so you needed to use a series of nice smells up high <laughs> by the nose and bad smells down by the vagina to, to put it back in the place it was supposed to be uh, and did that work oh yeah totally totally i mean it's it's, it's foolproof <laughs> when the women died in their autopsies they were well work is done well, I've, got, I've got a new topic of conversation for the next time i go on a date <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm going to be so alone. Um, 
so, so that's the end of day one. Uh, you'll be happy to hear that the, the subsequent days aren't quite so energetic as, as uh, day one. They have been busy, yeah. What I find quite endearing about this story is just the almost unfailing confidence of these doctors until it's quite clear that the king is simply not going to get better. Um, so if you're ready, we shall proceed on to day two. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, okay. <laughs> right, good news first of all. The king awoke in an improved state of health. Excellent. So clearly... Something had been working. The sleep. I don't like to be cynical, but I think possibly a good night's sleep might be the best thing that worked for the king that day. But the doctors weren't convinced, and they thought, brilliant, something's working, let's make sure we carry on in the same vein. And I do mean that quite literally. They opened his jugular vein, which seems quite risky, and they drained another 10 ounces of his blood. So let's just put that together. That's 34 ounces of blood had been drained from the king up until that point. How many cocktails is that? <laughs> Do you measure shots in ounces? A lot. Like, that's, a, that's a lot of cocktails. I think we're talking blood. pints, really. But uh, the king, by this point, is clearly being quite woozy. But that might have been a sign that actually he was maybe less sanguine to these doctors. Uh, and so perhaps the treatment was working. Now, this is the bit where, actually, I can almost get on board with it. But they put together a potion. And they got black cherries and peony, lavender, sugar, which would have been quite a luxury at the time. And, uh, oh, what's that other famous medical agreement? Crushed pearls. That's right. What? <laughs> ground them all up. Yeah, crushed pearls. Well, they're a kingly thing. So they ground them all up, tipped it down his throat. And you know what? They just let him sleep after that. I'm assuming it was a deep sleep. <laughs> I imagine it was a very, very deep sleep. But he slept for the remainder of the day and through the evening. And he slept like a baby. So again, this, the doctors are feeling confident. He seems to be getting a bit better Perhaps things are working. So the king awakes on day three and immediately has another seizure. Jesus. Oh dear. That's only going to make these doctors want to try even more mad stuff on him. I'll give you one guess what their first treatment was. Was it putting a chicken on his head and then having <laughs> mm -hmm. a pigeon shit over his feet? It was paracetamol. No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> just again. More blood. More blood. More blood. More blood. Let's see if that does any good. It, it didn't, obviously. Uh, so they put together yet another potion. So this time they managed to mix um, cenopods, which you might be familiar with. They're uh, quite a strong laxative. Mm. Yeah. And then they mixed that with spring water, a, a mixture of white wine and nutmeg, which again, is, it almost sounds like a bit of a cocktail, but uh, it would have just made him poo like brown champagne. I shall not be trying cenopods in my next cocktail, I must have uh, Wine and nutmeg. <laughs> well, things will certainly go off with a bang if you do, but we shall see. So... Then he was force-fed a drink, but it was a mixture of herbs and spirits. But it is listed as 40 drops of extract of human skull. Brackets. What? The skull taken from a man who had suffered a violent death. Nice. What witch is there at this point? <laughs> it's almost like they've moved on from their own mad Renaissance pseudoscience to just going, well, let's try magic. But that's what they used. They were trying everything that they could. Now, at this point, they could have actually done a little bit more homework because about a hundred years earlier, there'd been a French physician called Ambrose Paré, who was more of a surgeon, really, who had already made certain discoveries about the effects of poisons and the effects of medicines. And all of this had been written down in books. It was all very freely available. It was quite well known across Europe by this time, even though it was a hundred years before. He had already proved that the next treatment was completely and utterly ineffective. And that was by using ground-up bezoar stones to try and treat the king. Now, I'm familiar with what a, be a bezoar stone is. Only from Harry Potter. Uh, and what would that be? It was, it was an antidote to all poisons, isn't it? It's the gallstone taken from an East Indian goat. Not a West Indian goat! Get the right goat, people. An East Indian goat. For hundreds of years, this had been supposed to be an antidote to poisons and uh, to essentially work in all sorts of medical ways. But Paré had looked at this. He had put forward that bezoar stone didn't actually help with poisons because he had seen it used and he had never seen it work. He had gone to a court and there was a condemned man and they said to this condemned man, we're going to poison you instead of hanging you. But we will then treat you with the bezoar stone and if you survive, you'll get off scot-free, we'll consider you innocent. So the condemned man thought, mm, being hanged, being poisoned, but maybe saved by a stone, I'll give that one a try. They tried it, they poisoned him, and he died. <laughs> Parry had already written this down. It's just tragic, isn't it, that uh, the physicians a hundred years later uh, of Charles II didn't read any of that, and they tried some of these absolute quack remedies that were never going to work. But you've got to admire their confidence because they publicly proclaimed after that day's treatments that the king was going to recover. Hooray! That's a, that's, that's a bold claim to make. Let's just see how many days till he dies. Day four. The king is listed 
as near death on this day. So they try the old hot cups and blisters treatment again. Because it worked perfectly the first three days. So then they tried to bleed him again. Then they gave him the enema again. So any blood that he lost, they probably topped it up with all that stuff. Then they make him sick again. And once they've done all of that to him, at the end of the day, they decide to give him a a mixture called Jesuit's powder. Now, Jesuit's powder is a, a mixture of quinine, but that's laced with opium and wine. Nice. I can get on board with this. <laughs> yeah. And and you know what? It seems to do some good, but probably just because it was incredibly pain-killing and soporific and the king was just high as a kite by this point. Drugs. He smacked off his tits by this point. <laughs> and, uh, but as the day wears on, the doctors are actually becoming a lot more pessimistic now. They think that maybe they spoke too soon when they said that the king was going to live. A doctor called Dr. Scarborough wrote the following. He wrote... Alas, after an ill-fated night, his serene majesty's strength seemed exhausted to such a degree that the whole assembly of physicians became despondent and lost hope. No. I mean, I wonder what had been sapping the king's strength, really. I wonder. I I like the idea as well of the physicians becoming despondent and just going, oh, we've tried literally everything. We've, We've tried heating him up. We've tried blistering him. We've tried taking out his blood. We've shoved various things up his backside. Oh, nothing's worked. What's, it? What's even the point? What have you, we've tried literally everything. Have you tried a pigeon shitting on his feet? We've done that. Done that, mate. Have you tried laying some flowers on his tummy? Mm-hmm. Shaved his head? Everything? Yeah. You've done your best. But wait, they hadn't tried everything, had they? There's a bit of contradiction on the sources here because it's either something that sounds completely innocent or it's just could be literally anything. In the diaries, they list that they try a new and stronger potion on the king. And this was made, quote, from extracts of all the herbs and animals of the kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) All the herbs and animals of the kingdom, or at least what they could find within the grounds of the palace on the day of treat. (laughs) I've got a cat and a goat and some thyme and some parsley. And, okay, this this fish, we'll put it in. I don't know. The old fat spider behind the bath. I don't know. Whatever. But Bob the page. But but another source suggested that this was simply a mixture of barley water, licorice and absinthe. That sounds more fun. And I'll go with that. It does. And a little bit of mint just to kind of... Uh, uh, with a bit of mint to take... That's not all the herbs and... There's not even an animal in there. That's just <laughs> someone who goes out and just fucking improvises in the larder. Using my historical skills of inference, I think they were probably just bullshitting the king at this time and just said, well, we've tried everything else. We'll give him something vague, vaguely sweet. Robinson's barley water. He's got licorice mm. all sorts and... Perhaps that's what the garnish was or the cocktails, the licorice all sorts or the cocktails. Oh, oh yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. One of the weird pink ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, with the absinthe, at least the king finished the day pissed, so he probably got some sleep. And now we move on to the final day. Oh. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The 6th of February of 1685. Charles was weak 
and in great pain. But he was able to speak. He spoke his final wishes, and he wished to see all of his surviving children and mistresses one last time. I don't know whether they all turned up together, because that's, <laughs> <a really long. laughs> that's, that's a long day. Then asked for the curtains in his bedchamber to be drawn so that he could view the sun over the Thames for just one last time. And he spoke to his brother, James. He said, James, be well to Portsmouth, which was his affectionate name for the Duchess of Portsmouth, which is uh, Louise de Kerouai, the uh, spy. Uh, and showing just his, his really cuddly side, really, he said, and let, let not poor Nelly starve. <laughs> How kind of him. <laughs> just give her a modest selection of biscuits. And James just gently brushed his hair. Well, not his hair, that had been shaved, but just gently patted him and said, yes, my brother, I shall do. I shall do. And uh, I imagine James at this point was laughing all the way to the bank because he knew he was going to be king within hours. He then said to his courtiers, I have suffered much more than you can imagine. You must pardon me, gentlemen, for being a most unconscionable time a dying. And then he did what most people would do, converted to Catholicism and then died. <laughs> Get that in there quickly. <laughs> well, the, the conversion to um, Catholicism, of course, might just be a political move by his brother. There's no real strong sources to suggest that the king sort of did this at all. It might have been a case of James saying, hey, bro, you know I'm a Catholic and I'm going to be king, and, and that's sort of a bit frowned upon after the whole thing with dad and his head getting cut off. Do you mind just converting to Catholicism? And he sort of maybe just went, yeah, okay, without really knowing what was going on. To be and fair, so... he's high as a kite. He's partially sleep-deprived. He's drunk. Mm. And he's no blood in his body. He's going to say yes to anything. But that's it. At about 11.15 in the morning, he passed away. And that was the end of Charles II. Which rather begs the question as to what actually killed the king. Any thoughts? Well, obviously, it was that seizure that set him off in the first place. Yeah. That kicked off this whole malarkey. Yes, with the, with the shaving incident. The, sha- the shaving incident. The shaving incident, which is, which is interesting. Very, very of the time, you can imagine, you know, blades laced with poison, dresses laced <laughs> with poison, boys laced with poison. Or perhaps he just fell ill. He may have just fallen ill. And then <laughs> he may just, not have always been poisoned. Yeah, and then just six doctors fucked with him for five days just beggars belief the idea like again when you were talking through all of the treatments and you genuinely mm. think okay this must have happened over weeks but the idea that they were all racing over the course of 12 hours this didn't work try something else give it a yeah. minute to do stuff i don't know I, I, honestly there, it's such a theories mire. about what it actually was that got him well unfortunately we, we will never know absolutely certainly and for sure what it was but one of the controversial things is that At the time, even at the time, they said that he died from apoplexy, which is what today we would call a stroke. And it is likely that the king did suffer a stroke on the 2nd of February. However, he kind of regained his faculties, although he had some other seizures and things. But it doesn't seem like that was enough to kill him right away. No. All of the treatments afterwards may have done him a certain amount more uh, damage, I suppose. Yeah. And that's one of the wonderful things I think about this story is it's it's in that time period where people are sort of moving away from superstition, but not in, entirely. Hence things like the, the goat gallstones and human skull extracts and all of that. There's uh, a move towards science, but there's a really good mixture in between as well. So it, it makes it really unclear. Uh, and actually, it's the move towards science which might provide an alternative explanation for why the king died. Now, Charles II was a famous patron of the arts and of the sciences. So he founded, for example, the Royal Observatory. He was a great supporter of the Royal Society and he was interested in science. And it so happens that he had his own laboratory where he particularly enjoyed experimenting with mercury. Oh, that'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. So it has been put forward that there is the potential that the king died from uremia. Uh, but again, it's really difficult to prove that that is the case. Mm, that's what they have, you think? Well, they certainly would, because the, the third theory I've put down is simply that the treatment of his doctors finally carried him off. I think that's probably more <laughs> than likely, to be honest. So obviously, if it was a stroke, which from what you're saying does seem quite likely, um, mm. and that he was sort of getting, he was recovering and he did have, his, have lucid moments. And it was only... Mm through the intervention of his doctors that sort of ruined those moments and Mm. um, made him increasingly worse. As we've always said, Um, doctors' greatest poison of them all of just (laughs) messing with people, either not picking up on what 
is genuinely wrong with people and then prescribing medicines or treatments which are tantamount to poison themselves polluting the body with things that they don't need when the body is trying to recover or not or just just going this 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 skull will help them to recover all of these things that they think are you know bona fide treatments just messing with the body continually until it's polluted with cures and not only that, but you think about what this would have been doing to his blood pressure, for example, that the vast drops in his blood pressure with the, the just pints of blood that are being drawn from him on a daily basis, uh, then mixed with the, the heightened heart rate of enduring the pain of the, the hot cup treatments, which were drawing out the blisters and so forth, and just the stress of not knowing what the hell was going, going on with him. Um, and one of the things I do actually find quite tragic about this story is that he was clearly lucid enough on his last days if we can take his supposed late words at face value. And there were a lot of witnesses that, that seemed to suggest that he really did say things along these lines. He was clearly lucid enough to actually say, you would not believe what I have endured in the last few days. He was perfectly <laughs> aware of what was being yes. done to him. Very quietly going, you would not believe <laughs> what I have endured the last few days. Mm. What would that assembled group of courtiers have thought? They're all gathered around the king's deathbed, which is supposed to be quite a dignified sort of end. And he's got uh, all of his favourite people there, his mistresses. He's got his various children. I'd like to think he'd had his spaniels as well, with the sun over the Thames. And it's quite a serene sort of sight, except for the fact that the king is covered in popped blisters with the top of his head shaved and various stains, no doubt, all over the bedclothes. And that's how he finished his time. And a beat ripped up his ass. So that is the story of the death of Charles II. And, uh, and what a way to go. Yeah, I have no idea about any of that. I must admit, I have no idea. And that is... A, a, what a terrifying way to go that is um. quite grim that is grim what an awful way to go you've got that early hints of poisoning what actually led to his collapse in the first place mm-hmm. and then just how much abuse the body was in the final days of trying to find a cure that just absolutely decimates any chance of healing in the most gruesome and horrible horrible ways and what I think is one of the supreme ironies of all this is had he been a poor man, none of this would have been done to him. Oh, no, absolutely Oh, not. God, no. No, no, he'd no, been no, left no. To, he would have been left to his own devices and probably made a full recovery. Really, a lot of it was just kind of common sense treatments and things that people vaguely knew worked, even if they didn't quite understand how they did. But because the king was the absolute highest status you could be and he could afford the so-called best doctors and physicians that money could buy, well, their treatments were not actually effective and they, if anything, did him more harm than good. You have all these army of supposedly learned men around around him, probably mm. on the first day and the first treatments going, okay, well, let's try this. And for the rest of it, just panicking. Yeah. And mm. it's in absolute terror that they are responsible for the king's life. And the rushing around um, it. And just, mm. we've got to try absolute probably then maybe even in their minds going it's absolute lunacy but we've got to be seen to doing something um yeah. <laughs> and trying all this stuff writing such detailed notes <laughs> and diaries that we can well yeah you can read about it 400 years later <laughs> it's like it's it's having the doctor's charts isn't it it's having evidence to say we did all of this crazy as it is as it sounds now and probably mm. was a little bit of a far reach as you said at the time but just to prove we've done this yeah. trust us we did everything possible mm. for the king and the irony really comes from the, the vast majority of the poisoning of his body was done by the treatments rather than than anything else but what it seems that they forgot about these things and, and the teachings of Hippocrates was probably two things. Firstly, the observation of the effects of the treatments. They didn't give any of this stuff long enough to really take effect. Panic set in. The second is they seem to have forgotten that central principle of Hippocratic medicine, the Hippocratic oath that doctors still take today. The first line of which is quite simply, do no harm. And they did plenty of harm to poor old King Charles II. I don't think this was a case. I don't, well, you know, unless there was a massive conspiracy and those doctors or two out of the six doctors were trying, were the evil ones (laughs) who did nothing, who put the flowers on the tummy or just went, no, let's shave his head. Yes, (laughs) let's do this. You know, I think that they're just, they're just trying to help. They're, They're trying to help and they don't, they don't know any better at that time. They should, but they are grasping at straws if they don't cure the king their head is on the line it seems for the most part they did get away with it as well if you like or or rather they weren't blamed for the king's death and they recognized the efforts they'd gone into i suppose you might term it as being a sort of benevolent incompetence is uh, is what surrounds this Absolutely. exactly it's not even the most recent account of a king having been poisoned by his doctors 
Are you familiar with how George V died? No. So we're talking much more recent than this. George V is dying, but he's likely to die at a very inconvenient time. And there is a very strong suggestion that George V was actually killed with a lethal injection of morphine by his doctors so that his death could be announced in the morning papers rather than the evening post, which was so much more tabloid and sensationalist. And you can almost imagine them doing that just to keep up appearances and so that the king had the proper announcement because, after all, they were only altering the timeline of the king's life by a matter of a few hours, but very crucial hours. Uh, and this, this leads on to the, the final words of George V, who said uh, something along the lines of, I pray to God that I have done right by God and my country. Mm-hmm. Or rather... When his doctors suggested that perhaps he might take in the reviving air of Bogner, he is supposedly to have said, bugger Bogner. Before <laughs> oh, 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 chilling, <laughs> chilling. What a story. Brilliant story, Tim. Oh, great to have a story told in such detail. Indeed, as thank you very much for having me. What do people think about Charles II? That is a bad way to go. That is a bad way to go. And don't want to go like that. Don't shave, <laughs> Nick, don't shave my head. When I die and put cups. Oh, on that my was head. this evening's plan. Oh, <laughs> you wouldn't actually <laughs> try all, and do the the all. thing. You would just put teacups on my head and just go. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> just balance mugs on you. <laughs> you just lay gladioli on my stomach. A brilliant story, Tim. As ever, we have to ask you two very important questions. Mm-hmm. What is your favourite cocktail? Ooh, that's a very good question. You know what? I am very partial to mojito. I'm going to go with that. So I've had a very lovely evening drinking this. <laughs> Excellent. It's a very good choice. It's a classic. It's a good, yeah. it's a classic for a reason. And the second is, what is your favourite poison? Oh, now that really is a good question. I'm very tempted to say any form of heavy metal poisoning, simply because it was so misunderstood for so long and it just generally tends to send people quite mad. So let's go with he- any any form of heavy metal poisoning. I'll go with that. Including an axe. Uh, including an axe to the back of the neck. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for taking us on a journey. My pleasure. A different sort of journey about poisoning, not by intention, but by possibly good intention. By incompetence. We hope you enjoyed this chat with our latest expert witness. If you have more suggestions of different expert witnesses we can include on the show, drop us a message on any of the social media channels you follow us on. In the meantime, keep drinking, keep talking about poison, and remember, your loved ones are trying to kill you and doctors. (laughs) 